Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Okay, we're going to begin learning. I know we're all very excited to be here and discuss cheesecake, but we're going to start our Sudash Lishit learning. Okay, so we are learning about Parshat Naso, which, as I mentioned, we've been getting into uh, over the course of the past um, week. Mark was joking he's been reading it for a long time because it's true. We've been reading it for a whole week as we sort of make our way through uh, stalling. Sometimes when we get to a season of Chagim, a season of holidays that fall on Shabbat, then we then we. Uh, we kind of wind up um, stalling the the Parsha cycle because we're not reading the Parsha on Shabbat, which means that even though we read that Parsha in the Shabbat afternoon and in the weekday cycle in the mornings, we're not reading it on, on Shabbat mornings. We're getting a little sneak preview, but we're not getting the whole thing. So I am pulling out a piece from later in Nasso, a piece that we neither read on weekday mornings, nor will we read in the triennial cycle, the first Third, that's pulled out for those of us who will read, uh, who will hear this on Shabbat morning somewhere where we're only reading the first third. It's from the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers when we are reading about the Nazir. Uh, like I said to a couple of you as I was passing this out, this is more fun if you don't read ahead. Okay, so let's see if we can take this one piece at a time. So Numbers 6-2. Daber el bnei Yisrael ve'amarta alehem, speak to the children of Israel, saying to them, Ish oisha, a man or a woman. So this is going to be a law or a principle that applies to somebody of either gender. Ki yafli, who yafli? I'm not going to translate that for now. Lindor neder to vow a vow, or if I were translating as Everett Fox, to vow, yes, vow, eh, to be a Nazir, Lindor Neder Nazir, uh, which is a Nazarite's vow. It is a word unto itself. Nazir is a distinctive category of person, rather a, a it is a category of being. It is a category one can set themselves apart to be. So one can be a Nazir. One can be a person in a category of Nazir. It is a status, and it is also the way that one is referred to when in that status. Lehazir Ladonai. Really, it's saying that is to say, Lehazir to set oneself apart from. <laughs> as in to set oneself apart from society, from from stuff, from life, from a blank, kind of, it's not filled in there, to set oneself apart, la donai, for the sake of God. We're only really going to pick apart one little tiny piece of this verse for a second, okay? Rebbe Nachman of Bratzlav has a commentary on this verse that I want us to linger on a little bit that I never thought about before. Now, a Nazarite, before we get into this, a Nazarite, are we familiar with this idea of a Nazir? You had nods, the idea of a Nazir. A Nazir, we're going to discuss, is an ascetic person, 
It's somebody who chooses to set themselves apart because even though, generally speaking, the Jewish people is not a self-restrictive people, this is a status where one sets, takes upon themselves additional restrictions such that it sets themselves apart from the rest of people among the Jewish people in order to be set aside for God in this regard. And the verb that's used in this verse is curious for some people. It's curious for Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlav, who's one of our Hasidic masters. Some of us know some other teachings of Rabbi Nachman. From the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, from Likute Maharan, we find the following. We're not going to dig too deeply into it because it's thick stuff, but I really like it. The tikkuno shall hafla'aha zot. Okay. What's a tikkun? You just went to one. <laughs> Right? Some of you. A study session. A study session, yeah. So we call that a tikkun, uh, Leil Shavuot. Why do we call a tikkun a tikkun, by the way? It's one of the reasons I chose this, because I think it's a funny thing that we call it a tikkun. Because it's what? What do we do on Leil Shavuot? We study, but what are we doing with ourselves studying? We sort of... It's not like Havruta, we're in a big group. It's not Havruta, we're in a big group, but it could be Havruta. Some people just stay up all night at home. That's so much more boring though, right, Brant? We'd rather do it in a group. That's why we do it here. Um, right, Tikkun Litakain, the verb Litakain from which this comes means to fix. And the reason why I say fix and not repair is because fix in English also has the connotation of setting, as in if I'm going to fix something with glue or affix something with glue, I can set that thing. I can set it in that and it's going to fix it, right? It will be fixed in cement. It'll be fixed in glue, right? So tikkun can be a fix. It can be, I'm affixed in prayer all evening. So a tikkun leil shavuot is really that connotation. I am affixed in that. It's not necessarily for repair. That's not the connotation being used. However, that is the connotation that's being used here in this, in this uh, um, teaching from Rabbi Nachman. The tikkuno shall hafla'a hazot. What's a hafla'a? What's a pele, which is in the center of that? A wonder. A wonder. Boy, people really knew that one. I thought you were going to say a candy bar because Pella is like a very popular candy bar in Israel. Um, so, or a Miku, Miku pellet, right? Or Miku pellet, if you're doing the right grammar, Miku pellet or a pellet. Like lots of candy bars are named wonder, like wonder chocolate or whatever. Um, so, a tikkuno shall hafla ahazot, the, the repair or the fix of this wonder. What wonder is he referring to in this verse? What's the wonder? The Nazir. This, this person who's taking on the status of Nazir. What is it? A, it's going to be a tikkun of some kind. It's going to be a repair of some kind. Hainu shall silukan shall chachamim. As in, in the passing of the sages, tikkuno, it's fix, he's just re-emphasizing this word, hafla'a shall neder, it is the wonder of the vow, as in the vow itself, bivchinat, 
as in from this source, ki yafli lindor neder. This is the verse that we just shared. Ki al yedeha neder, for by the hands of this vow, meaning by means of this vow, hu ole lashorish shehachachamim mushrashim sham. By means of this vow, he goes up to the root of the source in which the sages themselves are rooted, which he calls Hainu Bechinat Pliyot Chochmah, that there's a wondrousness to wisdom. Skip the source that's in parentheses. So he, meaning the person who takes on the Nazarite vow, Makir, he comes to know the heights of the sages, the, or as this person uh, translates it, the virtues of the sages, but ma'alot are like the, the levels, the heights of. The al and by means of this, hushav uma'amin bahem, he comes back and he returns to having faith in them. So it's a tikkun, it is a return it is a wondrous, it is actually a miraculous pele return, and it's a fix to what? What is it repairing? So what, what happened before? Perhaps they were having trouble believing in them. Why might one take on a Nazarite vow according to we're, we're trying to get his read, not our read. What is the read of, of Rabbi Nachman? If you lack faith, you might, you might need to take a dive. Not that you need to, but that it actually might be the reason that is prescribed here, that they're prescribing a neder, a vow for those who do not believe, who are having trouble believing in order for them to be able to make a tikkun, a fix in their faith, because once one goes and takes on a vow of asceticism, of restricting themselves from all of the pleasures of life, perhaps they can reunite with their sense of faith, or at least understand the wisdom that the sages have found. This is one read, this is one possible read of why one would possibly want to go and become a Nazir. And I wanted to start here, and then I'll come to you, Sandra, I see you, you have a thought. I wanted to start here because I want us to be audacious in the way that we think about why one might possibly want to take on the identity, the status of being a Nazir, because it might not be what we think that it is. Sandra. I just want to point out some point we have about so um, talking about a lack of in the wisdom of the sages. Right, Rabbi Nachman is talking about a lack of faith in the wisdom of the sages, correct. I think of the mm -hmm. is, is um, just aside worldly pleasures. Right. Right. So, 
It is a very good question, which is if there is a wisdom that's rooted in the sages, and then you've got this this idea of a uh, of a netter that is to lehazir ladonai, right? You're supposed to do take on a vow that's supposed to separate you for the sake of Adonai. And so this person is doubting the wisdom of the sages, but you're becoming a Nazir for Adonai. And so where's the marriage of these two things? One possibility is that Rabbi Nachman thinks that they're one in the same and doesn't distinguish between the two things. Another possibility is that the idea here is a reunification of action and belief. Okay, so what we're talking about is I'm going through the motions, but I don't necessarily believe in them, which is an utterly relatable idea, I think, for anyone who has participated in ritual Jewish life. I think anyone and everyone who has participated at some point in ritual Jewish life has encountered the idea that you can be going through the motions of Jewish life and feel disconnected from the wisdom of the sages, so to speak, like why would they have fixed this practice? I don't necessarily understand this and that this might be a tikkun to that. I think that's a possibility as well. I see Brand has an idea. The thing I like about this is it's a recognition that not everybody's do you think it's a recognition that not everybody no, is the there same? Are okay. People who have okay. difficulties with faith. This is in a biblical context. I'm saying is that we know that today that this isn't for everybody. But maybe back then this is young to recognize there are some people whose faith is hard to come by. And you mm. can take this vow and you can delve more into it and maybe that will help you but it's a recognition that we are not all the same that's actually, that's wonderful of the differences between us and that and that the, this, this knockman understands that we have to care for it, we have to recognize that somebody's different and we can treat it in this way great brand i like that read of it a lot this idea that there might be people for whom the only way to really reground yourself when you're feeling a little floundering or, or lost in faith is to actually go a little harder in in your own personal practice to take on a time-bound limited length of time where asceticism is your practice so that you can get back into it so that you can believe again so that you feel you're in it again and that's not for everyone yeah. not everybody needs it not everybody wants it but it's an option yeah. and it's an acknowledgement that not everybody is going to take it on but it's there i want us to move on to the next section hold on to your additional thoughts it's not to cut you off but it's to make sure that we get through all of our sources we're going to continue to explore the ideas of uh of this asceticism that comes out of um that comes out of the notion of the Nazir. And we're gonna learn a little bit more about that deprivation and less about the details of what a Nazir actually does or doesn't do, and more about what actually is this asceticism. And this wisdom comes from Dr. Erica Brown. I am very, very lucky because Dr. Erica Brown was just coming into Washington DC when I was an undergraduate and I got to have her as a professor individually. She's now a very well-known Talmud scholar and a teacher of teachers in Washington DC area. She's the scholar in residence perpetually at uh, 
I don't remember what her chair is, but she has a chair at the DC Federation and she is a remarkable teacher. She has podcasts and books and I recommend her highly. She wrote a book called Leadership in the Wilderness. It's not just about uh, Bamidbar, but she has some wonderful teachings on Bamidbar. And we're gonna look at two of her teachings. One is about the Nazir and the taking on of asceticism. And the next one we're going to read is about what happens when the Nazir leaves that status and why. Okay, so I'm gonna read this out loud because I have the microphone and I want everybody to hear. So I'm gonna read it and then I'm gonna ask you a question. The question that I'm going to ask of you is, what in this particular case is the difference between a Nazir, like the status of a Nazir based on the description that we're reading here and what we talk about today as deprivation or depriving ourselves for self-righteous or righteous reasons. What is the way that Dr. Brown is describing the notion of Nazir as a form of self-deprivation and the way that we in 5783 in 2023 think of and talk about self-deprivation, okay? I'm going to read her description. Jewish asceticism, unlike many other forms of asceticism, does not seek to separate mind or soul from body, focusing instead on the mind itself without the trappings of physical pain or deprivation. The Talmud specifically questioned why a Nazarite did not abstain from food instead of wine and answered that not having food would weaken him. The goal of abstention is not to weaken the body's constitution, but to free the mind from distraction or distortion, such as would be caused by alcohol consumption. In the words of the 16th century Italian exegete, meaning the commentator who we know, Rabbi Avadia Sforno, the Nazir consecrated himself to God to, quote, engage in God's Torah, follow God's ways, and cling to God. The idea is neither to punish nor to weaken the body, but rather to enhance one's capacity for transcendence. What is the difference between the way that we talk about deprivation today and the way that this is describing self-deprivation for self-righteous or self-beneficial reasons? Like a diet? Any, any form of depriving oneself any form of holding back for personally beneficial or self-righteous reasons. Uh, Alan, since I haven't heard from you. It seems to be more for a sense of greater clarity of the mind and not to deal with depriving the body of anything, but depriving oneself of the pleasures in life. And since the, not drinking alcohol is viewed for the, with an Isaiah, it's not a sense, well, I'm depriving myself of alcohol, it's to ensure that my mind can be as clear as possible. So it's not necessarily deprivation for the sake of deprivation, it's deprivation for the sake of clarity. So whatever it will take for the sake of clarity, except that it's very specifically prescribed, right? It's not just whatever might take me personally or you, Alan, personally to get to clarity, it's, it's specifically prescribed. However, it seems that the purpose is for clarity. I saw Bob's hand and then I'll come over here. I was gonna say, it's about, it might be about intensifying the experience. The hospital, or that's the word, the wonder of it all. 
Oh, the hafla'ah, yes. The wondrousness, yes, very good. Mm. So it's not about deprivation actually at all in your, in your, um, in your estimation, even though there is deprivation to get there, it's not really about the deprivation itself whatsoever. It's about the wondrousness that one can experience through deprivation. Bob, how does one experience wondrousness through deprivation? No, not deprivation, it's just intensifying the experience. Intensifying the experience of Torah and, and composing God. How, how is one going about doing that? By, by taking out the debris, by removing the debris. Mm. By, removing the by removing the detritus, by removing the debris, by removing the extra stuff. So it's not deprivation at all. I love this. It's like... No, no, don't even think of it as deprivation. What we're saying to you is get rid of distraction. Get rid of the other stuff. We're saying, we're not saying it's deprivation at all. It's actually, you don't even realize this. It's not deprivation. It's get rid of this other stuff because when you do get ready, it's going to be amazing. The clarity, what you'll, what you'll experience and what you'll have. I love that. That's really wonderful. Thank you for going down that path with me. Gary, yeah. A couple, couple points. One, I think that um, it's like, Hmm. You get a closerness to God. And it's, I think the Nazareth point is not to not to feel good, but to, to get closer to God. And that was their their and also I, I think that it's almost like Lent. Because you rent Lent. So you're, you're, you're giving up something, whatever it is, and it's supposed to be something that's important for this two-month period, whatever the month period is, for Lent. You're, you're, you're able to you want to give something that's important to you, and it is a reminder of your so on the one hand, uh, so I've heard two things. So one is, it really is about closeness to God, ultimately. It's not just about the wondrousness that you can achieve or the clarity that you can achieve. It is about this neder that brings you, that separates you from other things such that it brings you closer to God. And two is that you're right that there are emulations of this in other parallel traditions. That the Christians do emulate this through Lent in many ways, through a sort of self, there, there's a lot more autonomy in it. There's a self-led process of depriving oneself or of, we're not going to say deprivation, clearing the debris of something distracting, right? I'm not going to eat cookies or whatever it is for that, uh, for that period of time, but I'm clearing those things away because I want to get closer to God during that time. Good. Uh, Alan, I'll give you a double point, and then we're going to move to the other uh, text. Just a question. What if the, you're talking about not drinking wine. There's also a prohibition on cutting one's hair, letting one's hair grow. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't... I don't see clearly how that would help one become more focused. Great. That's a wonderful question. So Alan asked the question, how is it uh, differently than wine might, might do? How is it that not cutting one's hair might possibly lead that person to a place of more clarity or the wondrousness or deprivation? I want to say that where we're going to land, the very final source that we're going to read tonight is going to take us to a place of saying the hair has such an extraordinarily profound point, a ritual beginning and a ritual end, that you're you're going to be wowed by her take on it. So I'm not even going to answer it because I want Dr. Alana Kershan, not Dr. Alana Kershan, I want her to answer for us, okay? I can tell you definitely didn't read ahead. Uh, Alana Krishan is going to answer that for us. Uh, did you want to well, offer I'm something? Gonna, without reading it, but it seems to me that my parents do is 
Right. So uh, Sandra says, you know, it's it's hair is the ultimate um, symbol of vanity. And what um, what what we're doing here at this point is to try to clear the way. Right? If we're taking Bob's uh, view of this, right, we're trying to take away this focus on self uh, in the way that we cover mirrors during Shiva, that we take away this this uh, self um, the self awareness, this focus on our own hair and on the need to to uh, to look a particular um, way. That's not the route that many of our commentators take. And I bet you someone out there has said has said as much. I think that it's actually speaks that actually speaks to me more as a, a modern, right? Your explanation, Sandra, speaks to me more in 2023. And I wonder, but I don't know for certain because I'm not a historian of this period uh, as much as I'm a reader of the secret literature, if in fact, longer hair would have been a sign of more or less vanity. And so part of me just doesn't know what it would have meant to grow the hair any longer. So I have questions about that, but you're going to see that we're about to talk about hair a lot. So let's look at the next source. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read this for you because it's such a great long exploration about hair. Here we go. So this is this is about the end of Nazardom, <laughs> the end of being a Nazir and the end of the ritual. Here we go. This is also Dr. Erica Brown on the Nazir. The most curious aspect of the sacrifice is not how one explains its purpose, but how one explains its details. The traditional sacrificial elements are present. Two lambs and a ram, unleavened cakes of choice flour, and unleavened wafers and oil, all of which are presented to the priest. However, in an often neglected detail, the Nazarite then himself contributes to the presentation of the offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his consecrated hair at the entrance of the tent of meeting and take the locks of his consecrated hair and put them on the fire that is under the sacrifice of well-being. It is often overlooked, by the way. She continues, an integral part of transitioning the Nazarite back to ordinary life was not only the cutting of his hair, but also the offering of his hair on the altar as part of the sacrifice itself. He had to watch his own hair, the most prominent aspect of his ascetic commitment, go up in heavenly smoke, creating the mental readiness to rejoin the world of distraction and mental static. Watching his hair burn created total recognition that his break from the often banal world of human engagement was over. Similarly, God commanded Yechezkel to take a razor and cut the hair on his head and beard, and then divide the hair into sections to mimic the takeover of Yerushalayim, which was to be segmented after a conquest. Take also a few hairs from there and tie them up in your skirts and take some more of them and cast them into the fire. From this, the fire shall go out upon the whole house of Israel. Like the Nazarite, the prophet must burn his own hair to place himself in the drama of the moment. He set fire to part of himself. Burning hair creates an unpleasant stench. In the Talmudic tractate Shabbat, in a discussion of material that can serve as wicks for Shabbat lights, the use of hair is prohibited because it does not burn, it scorches. Thus, in sight and smell, the hair offering must have given the Nazarite pause. As a ritualist, I love this so much. Before I say anything or ask any more, any first reactions to this? 
what's interesting to me is that in a world of biblical existence, where they don't have a television, they don't have an iPhone, there's sure a lot of attention paid to distractions in life. So Brant Brant points out that even though today we say, look at all the distractions in our world, and we name all of these contemporary problems of of modernity, of of like uh, of of phones and devices and all that, even with none of that, a world of distraction and mental static. Right, a, a world of distraction and mental static. Way way before this existed, there's nothing new about distraction. Right. Should we be burning our, uh, right? Should we be burning our, our, uh, you know, what, what's the equivalent in, <laughs> you know, we like create a, a, a list of contacts or something that we burn, burn it at the end. Recognition of the, sometimes the physical is necessary to accomplish. And, 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 and so I accept that ritual has a place to play, just like, you know, we carry around the tours and we do certain things and this burning mm-hmm. ritual and the stench and all that, mm-hmm. it's symbolic of the break. I get it. And what I'm saying is that all throughout religion, particularly Jewish religion, we have various physical manifestations in order to help us um, understand what we're doing, customs, stuff. So this is really that much different. Although, you know, I, 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 one of the things I always have to ask about these things is, does this really ever take place? I don't know. Right. So you said three really important things. One is it really is remarkable that that long, long ago, the same conversation was taking place. It really is nothing new. There have always been distractions. Human beings will always be distracted from the spiritual highs by mundane and banal things all around us. Number two is there's something about attacking the spiritual distress in our lives through physical physically manifest rituals and that is why my work as in creating and doing rituals is so um continues to compel me over and over again to create and recreate ritual because i think that it's very hard to deal with spiritual distress or to kind of get through and cut through that that static to cut through that noise without actually manifesting it and three is i agree it's very hard to know how much of this actually ever took place but the notion of it, even as a fairy tale, is powerful. And that's why we're studying it in its setting. But it is a good question, how much of it ever really did. I saw Sandra's hand, and then I want us to get to this folk tale that's here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Jews, anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, there, the joke was the two lawyers can't stop talking, but we're all a bunch of Jews. We're just talking. Two Jews, three opinions. That's right. Uh, um, two Jews, three views. Yeah. I, I found it, I found the concept that visceralness, like that ended up being me shaving the hair. We're all very, like there are lots of rituals. It is growing out of our head. Yes, we were all very attached to our hair because it is growing out of our head. Right. But you're right, there is a, there is a really visceral nature. We cover their hair, we put a coupon, on, we, like it's part of our identity, it's part of our identity. Right. Ritual, and to shave it off after growing it, my sister-in-law, she did not cut her here and that first cut or the cutting of a boy's hair there, there's something and i don't know quite putting it there and burning it. it's like it's literally taking it. yeah i think that that um you're right that there is this profound nature to the shift that happens in a person that is so amazingly counter to this idea that we would name it as vanity to focus so much on hair and yet when somebody goes from having super long hair because of something like Ave Lute, 
and then all of a sudden cuts it. Or somebody who we've known to have simply shoulder length hair, but they have to cut it because they're about to go through a cancer treatment. Or a, a young boy who's never had his hair cut before and is suddenly cut, or a young girl for that matter, and the first haircut, all of a sudden it changes. On the one hand, it's just hair. And on the other hand, it is quite literally attached to us. And there is a reason why it's not only uh, visceral because it's coming off of our head, but also I'm really moved by the potency of this idea that when you burn hair, it smells different. There's something about it. It is a different kind of offering. It changes the offering that's being brought forward. And I want us to finish with Alana Kershan's take on this because she gives us the takeaway. She's going to give us the takeaway from this that gives us the modern, um, the, the modern hop, the modern walk away with a something to hold in your hand about this. And Alana wrote, if all the seas were ink, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I will get a copy of it to you if you haven't read it yet. It is a book about her experience in as a Talmud scholar uh, and also as a mom going through divorce. Alana lived in Jerusalem at the same time that I did. As she studied Talmud, every time she finished a parak, she would summarize it with a limerick, and then she would teach that limerick. And it was a way of, of us uh, learning it all together as a community at Kedem. It was a great community in uh, Jerusalem. We used to daven together on Emek Rafaim. And she has such a gift for teaching about Talmud and about rabbinic sources on, um, on our sacred texts. And she brings together sort of cl very often classic American literature together with our rabbinic teachings, and she does exactly that here. So here, here is her final teaching. But another useful intertext, albeit one that came much later, is the famous O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi, in which the heroine also examines her reflection and is struck by her hair. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. Della sells her hair so that she might have enough money to purchase a Christmas present for her beloved husband, Jim. She buys him a fob for his watch, unaware that he has sold his watch, to buy her combs for her rippling, shining hair. By the end of the story, it is clear that Della and Jim have given each other the most meaningful gifts of all, because their gifts symbolize the sacrifices they are prepared to make for one another. Perhaps we should not be surprised then that the Nazir is commanded to grow long hair and then offer it in sacrifice to God. In the Torah's synecdoche, the hair of the Nazir substitutes for the entire person. And thus the Nazir sacrifices his or her hair as a way of symbolically sacrificing himself or herself. Hair is a renewable part of our body. When we give it up, we are not endangering ourselves, but rather enacting the gesture of sacrificing something we value deeply for the sake of another ideal. We might shave our hair to burn on the altar or sell it to buy a present for a spouse, but we might also donate our hair to organizations that make wigs for cancer patients, thereby allowing someone else to feel beautiful again. The Nazir challenges us to think about other creative ways we can give of ourselves and how in so doing we might find ourselves transformed.
So what Ilana says is the only purpose in growing one's hair long is to give it away. My message to you from this teaching is that the asceticism that set forward in Judaism through the example of the Nazir, the thing that is so wondrous here is the notion that we would go about figuring out what it is that we can completely give of ourselves and give up of ourselves that neither robs ourselves of our humanity, but also allows for us to say, I am only doing this, only doing this exclusively for the sake of going through the process of spiritual renewal, not for personal gain, not because I'm on some other kind of a journey, not because I've been pressured to do so, not because this is what my community is doing, because I am on this journey and my intention is that at the end of this process, I am able to give this over and to give this up. The hair is one great example, but as Brant reminded us, we are all different and we all have different ways of doing this and of giving this. And it's a path that we can go on in a way that we can emulate this teaching of the Nazir and if you have any other takeaway from this, it's please read more Alana Krishan. She's a really good writer and teacher. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org. 